Hello, Megan. Hi. You're back. Yes. Love it. Love it. Thank you for joining again. Much appreciated. No Corona this time. No tech problems this time, probably. We'll see. We hope. <laughs> it adds to the excitement, right? I'm on a new laptop and I'm using a browser that has no plugins or anything. So hopefully we will be okay. Fantastic. I had my, my, my brief problems with my camera before we started. That seems to be fixed, but we'll, we'll, we'll take it as it comes. It's nice to see you again. Um, do you want to do like a quick intro about yourself before we get chatting and whatnot? Is that okay? Sure. Cool. Uh, Over to you. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you. <laughs> Uh, my name is Megan Longoria. I live in Denver, Colorado, and I split my work time kind of half and half between Power BI and data engineering stuff and data warehousing. Mm. And that's kind of where I started was back way before Power BI was created. I did SQL Server data warehouses and reporting services and analysis services and all that. And I just fell into it from my first job. And 15 years later, I still do it. <laughs> Got into <laughs> consulting 11 years ago. Oh. So now I feel pretty firmly rooted in the SQL and Power BI communities. I get to mm. do fun stuff uh, like Workout Wednesday for Power BI. Yeah, nice. I get to speak all around the world, which is really cool. Mm. Um, I'll be in Orlando next week speaking. Nice. So I really enjoy data visualization. I like to talk about accessibility, but mm -hmm. I also enjoy building lake houses and using Data Factory. That's like a nice split of, uh, you can use both aspects of your personality perhaps, or um, which is your favorite though? If you had to pick, if someone said you meet, you must pick one now, which I'm literally doing, what would you do? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to well, answer, you, you, you can refuse so it if you want. It depends on okay. favorite as to what, because data engineering makes more money. Yeah, and I like, data visualization the best, but people don't want to pay for it. Yeah. I thought you were going to say makes more money and I like money. I thought that was where you're going to go with that sentence, which is also valid. I mean, That's... I do. It pays for my mortgage. It so. does. Right? It comes in really handy. I find generally money. Um, yeah. Okay. I understand. <laughs> but pure enjoyment. I love data visualization and trying to figure out how to make that work for people. Yeah. That's nice. I just will never probably go pure data mm. viz or even pure power BI because having the additional data engineering skills makes me more money and makes projects go easier when I can do all of that. Yeah. And it makes you a, a more round person regards what you can do and how you can help people. I was with thinking about like data visualization accessibility. I was actually just thinking of you the other day because um, do you know how you go through like phases with colors and stuff and design preferences? I've fallen into something and I honestly don't, <laughs> I like how it looks, but I was looking at it and I was kind of like, what would Megan think of that? <laughs> would, she, would, she, <laughs> would, she, would she approve these color choices? Cause it's kind of like this whole, like, I mean, my, my, my use of oranges is clearly no secret, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, which was purely accidental, I have to say. I just started liking it for some reason. Um, but then it's kind of my, 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 this report that I've been working on, private stuff, is kind of, I would say, if I had to describe the color, well, if I used, it would, it, it's called light orange, but it looks more like a peachy color to me, to be quite honest. Combination of that. And I was like, I wonder how accessible it actually is. Is there some kind of tool you can run stuff through and it tells you how accessible it is? There yes. Is. Okay. I thought there would be. Yeah. And if you're doing it before you put all the colors in, uh, Adobe has tools to help you plan both color contrast and colorblind friendliness. Mm. So you just plug your palette in and it'll tell you like, oh, these two colors are too close together to be easily distinguishable. And oh, this can't be distinguished from your light gray background or you know whatever you mm. put in there. Okay. So there absolutely are tools and there are tools that you can just shove screenshots in there and it'll be like, oh, this is what it looks like for a person who has color vision deficiency of this type. Yes, and you go, oh, I can't true. tell the difference between all of that. I forgot about that. So a while ago, that's cool. Okay, I'll use that. I could just share my screen and show you now, but I feel like I would, like a deep sense of shame if it was too terrible. So I, I wouldn't subject myself to that. You know, most people don't check that. So the fact that you're thinking about that at all makes me happy. Although I feel like when I walk in a room or people start talking to me, they go, oh, no, my colors are not good. <laughs> but that's what I'm now known for. <laughs> Which exactly. I guess is okay, but I'm really not here to punish people for using bad colors. <laughs> it would get bad if people start get worried about the the colors that they're dressed in as well. If they clash somehow <laughs> as well, that could, that that could be quite that a would lot. Be bad. Yeah, it's okay. 
Um, but no, okay, I'll, I'll run my I'll run my palette through this. It's but it's been like this transitional thing. This report started off purple, purple in the background there. Started off purple and then got a little bit of black in, in, into it, and then the orange came, and then it just kind of went through, and it is where it is now. And yeah, whatever. It's, it's, My opinion it's, is that no individual color is bad. It's the combination of colors that yeah. can make things problematic. There are some colors that are super bright that might not be what you want to use as your background, but maybe they're appropriate in some other context. Yeah. So even if you tell me I used orange, you know, I don't have a problem with it until I <laughs> until I see it and <laughs> and want to know, you know, how does it how distinguishable is it from mm. the other things or are you using it to highlight the most important thing because it's a very exactly. exciting color yeah or you have to stare at it for like 45 minutes during a live stream and then you've got this <laughs> orange in your face it's like yeah. this, is, this is too much i i have i, I am there's a i forget the, the name of the person actually there's a like data rapper who are based in berlin there's someone who works with and she has a really good article about yeah, use of colors and stuff which i link in oma now company eternal documentation it's very much about using colors to like highlight stuff and um i was going through creating documentation of my company and i came up with a phrase i'm not sure i'm not sure if i invented the phrase but i like it just data viz peacocking which is to like <laughs> be flamboyant with the colors for the sake of flying flamboyancy you know yeah and you know what's hard about that is that it's culturally based like some cultures are much more okay with color than others. It doesn't mm. feel as eye assaulting. And some cultures are also more okay with more dense visualizations. I think Alberto Cairo talked about this. Uh, he came through Denver several years ago, maybe 2019. And I remember him kind of going through that. He had published things in Brazil and Japan. And it's like the, the, English speaker countries are all like, we need all, um, you know, we need beige. Everything is mm, <laughs> super light yeah. and super spare. And that tends to be our style and what we associate minimalism with uh, usability and accessibility. And to some extent, that is true because there's just less cognitive load. Mm. But it really does change depending on what you are used to seeing. So if your culture is full of color, it doesn't bother you as much. Have you ever gone to, I don't know, maybe there's some places in Europe like this, but um, I wandered around South America and Mexico when I was in college and mm. their houses are so colorful. Yeah, okay. And I just think back to where I live and everything's brown. Especially <laughs> <laughs> in Denver, it's either like brown or this, they have this yellow brick that was super popular in the 50s, 60s, somewhere in there. Okay. That just stains the whole city. <laughs> Like I could never live in that a house like that because that yeah. color personally bothers me. But I didn't grow up here. I, you know, mm. I grew up in Texas and we had I had a nice brick home and mm. totally different style. So the people that have lived there here their whole lives are like, it's just brick, you know. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. This is um place in, in Scotland, I think it is, that's quite famous for having these really rows of very bright colored houses. I think it was on also some kind of kids' TV show that was on there. I want to say something like Bally Mori or something, but I've, that's probably wrong, and I've been made a fool of myself, and I'm gonna get um, mocked for that, something like that. Uh, Kerry says, "Yeah, it's exactly." Um, yeah, Lisa Charlotte, and that's that's who it is. She's got some awesome articles. So much good content. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Date Rap is based in Berlin. I always feel like I should just go to the office and knock on the door and say, "Hey, can you give me <laughs> can you give me some information, please? That sounds really cool." I've never been uh, to Berlin. It's on my list, though. It's it's a nice city to to, to come to. It's um, not so much in the winter. I guess if you don't like the cold and what have you and the general grayness, it's a much more. But you then you got the Christmas markets, right? Bit of glue vine, bit of whatever bratwurst. <laughs> if you like bratwurst, you can get that all year round. But yes, I'm, I've lived here for many years now, so, so I'm quite biased. Um, ben asked a question before, and I think it was going down so a route of kind of you being some kind of enforcer. But I'll ask the question anyway. <laughs> um, if not colors, what do you punish people for, Megan? Many many relationships, bad data modeling. I'm not sure. <laughs> I fix a lot of bad data modeling. Um, I mean, it is kind of colors, but not like the choice of a color. It's the general like let's fix your data viz. And I would say making something that you didn't actually make with your audience in mind. Mm. 
Yeah. Okay. Like yeah. if you are your own audience and you made something for yourself, I don't care. Like do whatever you want that makes you happy. But when you start making it for other people, hmm. I mean, think about all the AI and stuff we have now that can spit out, you know, really dumb charts based off of fields and all that. They're horrible because hmm. they're not useful to people. Hmm. So the only way that we add value over a computer doing all this stuff is our understanding of the data and our understanding of how people interpret information. If you just want to throw crap on a page, then why do I need you? Yeah, yeah. that's fair. Um, thinking of that, so have you had any experience with, with, with Copilot? This seems like a really random question for you, but you kind of brought up this whole AI thing. Have you played around with the Copilot at all? A little bit. Yeah, I've um, not. You know, I... I have, I am very ambivalent, meaning I have feelings on both sides of things about use of AI, because I think we don't, you know, if you're doing it for some inconsequential thing, I don't care, but <laughs> there are consequences to using it. Some of them are dissolution of intellectual property, mm. where you threw it into something that's not keeping your secrets. Some of them are that you didn't check the thing that you got out of Copilot and it caused people to make really poor decisions. I was reading an article the other day about this lady in Georgia who started a company, basically like they took some people from eHarmony and tried to make a child adoption matchup algorithm. And it started putting these children with people that were not a good match. And a bunch of states bought into it because she used to be a social worker and the story sounds really good. And she, May, I mean, she cost several states millions of dollars. She made people whose lives were already kind of hard a lot harder. And well, it's it's science, it's AI. And that's all mm. I had. Like, I think there should be, and there was no transparency. So the people using, the social workers using the system had no information about really how the algorithm works so that she was like, it's just a starting point, which is what we say. The AI is just a starting point. How many people really think about it like that? Mm. Or they just go with it. They're like, yeah, it'll be fine. And if it's, it's you know, a chart about your sales for today, maybe you don't care unless you're the sales director. But when it's a chart that has real impact and consequences, or even if it's not the data in the chart that has consequences, but what if somebody is just having a really, really bad day and they could just, you know, they just want to be able to read the chart and get the information they need and leave. Mm. They, mm. you know, you're making someone's life unreasonably harder for no good reason <laughs> yeah yeah that's my problem it's so promising but like i we're not there yet and yeah everybody's probably hate on me and you know no, whatever yeah I... the future but like we're we're just in my in our power bi data world we're not there yet i mean i don't think anyone can hate on you for saying that maybe we shouldn't be using ai algorithms to help place children in um i mean <laughs> that is an enormous enormous leap from as you say yeah okay we can use it and maybe see what the sales were last week or whatever and if there's a, a mistake there it's not great but it's not not the end of the world but when you're looking <laughs> when you're looking at that sort of thing it's the blind faith that is is disconcerting to me and it's also like we haven't met developers we're awful we don't test our stuff <laughs> <laughs> we're just like yeah it's gonna work it's fine have you done the test and you have QA? It's fine. I've done like five Yeah, we five use minutes. AI to test our AI, yeah. so it's all good. But I find it really funny that people who are using stuff like these these tools, um, whatever, ChatGPT, all this type of stuff, and not really checking. But there are also still people who are bad at Googling. I mean, Googling is still for me, or, or search engineing, whatever you want to call it, using search engines to get optimal re um, results. Um, so some people are still bad at that. And these people are also then using tools that can you know ai tools gpt tools and it's like it's it it has to be recognized that it, there's a skill involved to get it right and it's a very new thing so so we always say at my the company where i work denny cherry and associates it's mostly like dbas data architects mm -hmm. data engineering and i'm probably the only one who really cares about data biz although other people have those skills um you know, people send stuff, oh, we won't need DBAs anymore. They've, DBAs has been a, a dying profession for 15 years now. And you're like, you know why it won't? Because no one can articulate what they actually need. Hmm. That's true. Because yeah, hey, AI, go build me this database. Well, what's it supposed to have in it? Hmm. People don't know because they don't understand the underlying technology or they don't understand the underlying business processes. So I, 
even if a lot of my job gets automated, I will still be there to help people figure out what they really want Mm -hmm. and to UAT that to make sure it's what they really need because AI can't get and is really far away from helping us with that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed for sure. It's, I mean, there are certain things that will, that will be, will become easier, but to say, I was going to take this away or, but it's, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it develops for sure. But it's, it's, um, right now, it's not something I'm particularly losing any sleep about, about actually, and just as I'm saying this, um, this comment about writing Vega light and Deneb. Yes, for this, it's, it's great to help write little bits and pieces of code. Yeah. I'm not sure I, and for me, I, I compare it to my German, okay? So I can speak German, okay? Um, I can not write German very well because uh, I never really learned how to do it. So you, you can basically, when I write German, you can see all the grammar, all the, all the grammar, grammatical errors. It's like that. It would be like a, maybe like an eight-year-old eight had written it, yeah? Um, probably not, maybe not even that. So I'll use something like, you know, DeepL to do the translation for me. I'll write in English and then DeepL will do, a, 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 well, do the translation. But then I won't just copy and paste the DeepL translation into the email. I'll then read it myself and I'll check it. Because if I can, if I read the German, I can understand it and I can see any errors and I can see bits and pieces that I would change. I can't write it myself, but I can improve it myself. And I think pretty much the same for stuff like, like this that Christopher mentioned using um, oh yeah, I've definitely done little things like that, and I think it's helpful. Yeah. But there's human supervised AI, and then there's unsupervised, and yeah. it's the unsupervised that I think has a long way to go. Yeah, the yeah. supervised machine learning and AI I think can be really, really helpful. And yeah. I do the same thing. Um, I speak. I don't use it regularly, so I'm not great at it, but I speak Spanish. It was my dad's first language. I studied it in high school and college. I have a minor in it. I went to a bunch of different countries and did an internship in Chile. So like I I kept up with it pretty well, Hmm. but I've forgotten so much now. So when I need to talk to people, I'm still in Google Translate. I'm like, does that look right? And I can tell when it's wrong, Yeah. but I couldn't have come up with that because I I forget a lot of random words. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, Carrie says like those awful AI articles on LinkedIn. They are the worst. I'm so tired of those. And you can <laughs> and, and you can spot them like a mile off. It's it's so uh, yeah. Yeah, I could just I could just sit here and complain about those for 45 minutes to be honest, because it's just it's 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 they always seem to use the same emojis as well somehow. I'm not sure how <laughs> they've learned to always use like the rocket emoji in this, and it's a paragraph and emoji. It's just yeah, and it's that's the thing. It's 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 so blatant as well. Again, I, it, if someone writes it and it's okay, and then I'll change bits and pieces. But when it's just really just kind of like, you know, it's the, the classic um, my first dashboard post. It used to be like a dashboard and a bit of text. Now it's like my first dashboard and it's got like a massive, I am pleased to announce that I have, using this analysis, we can now, it's like, no, no. Uh, anyway, I don't want to sit here and get grumpy, which is <laughs> No, I'm with you. It's okay. <laughs> which is very, very easy for me to do. Um, but yeah, before we move on, I want mm-hmm. to point out since Ben Weissman is here, what is over my head? I pointed the right direction, shoulder here. <laughs> Very good. Ah, that cool. is, is that Bobblehead Ben and Bobblehead William. That's awesome. I want it at um, <laughs> what, what? How many years ago was that? 2022. Okay. Very nice. Was it yeah. like at a um, conference or something? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes. At Ben and William's conference. Except ah, it nice. says the year 2021 on it, which got canceled, which is pretty, pretty unique. I have like the one-off, you know how people do the collector item for the yeah, thing that yeah. ever happened or whatever. Yeah. That's mine. <laughs> <laughs> for a split second, I was going to ask why it got canceled, but then obviously it was pretty clear for a second. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Very nice. So basically you always have Ben and William sitting over your shoulder, reminding you, <laughs> keep, keep yeah. an eye on you basically. Um, if you're going to speak about things over your shoulder, I'm curious about the scarves over your other shoulder. Are they like football um, or soccer scarves? Sorry. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. The top one is from Bilbao in Spain oh, so because yeah. that's where I did my first study abroad. Cool. That's awesome. I like that. I don't no. think their team is actually great or anything, but <laughs> I went to a game. I saw the stadium. It was awesome. I kept it. Somehow, if the, if it's from a not a particularly 
if it's from a smaller team, it becomes a bit cooler somehow. Like if it was like a Barcelona, I want to be a bit less cooler. But like given if it's it's a slightly smaller, it seem a bit more niche somehow, you know. Um, but yeah. Like when you listen to that record that no one's heard about yet. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That that that's for me and, and my musical taste is not me very often, to be honest. Um, I'm kind of I have a, I have a couple of friends who are like really into music and know everything. I'm I'm the person who I kind of Google the bands that I want to see, and then I miss them by like a month, like they were in Berlin like a month ago. That's just basically always me. It's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. I go to about three concerts a year. I, I don't love crowds, so I pick mm. and choose. But I have Red Rocks less than 30 minutes away from me, the yeah, Red Rocks so. the theater. Oh, um, it is a amphitheater built into the rocks that has this amazing no way. sound because of the way it was designed and the acoustics of it. Um, it, awesome. it is one of the best concert venues in the US, if not the world. So, you know, when I say I only go to a few concerts, it might be because I'm spoiled now. <laughs> <laughs> so I pick and choose my Red Rocks concerts. There's some other venues around here too. I just went um, went to a concert a couple weekends ago, but now that it's cold, I don't do Red Rocks. Yeah, fair enough. So I'll Google it because it sounds pretty awesome. I think the the biggest bad, I, mean, I always said I want to go and see REM before they broke up and I managed it back in oh, 2000, wow. 2000 and whatever it was. Seven, eight, maybe I don't know. Run about that time, and then so once they broke up, I was like, a bit disappointed because I love them, but I did what I need, what I need to do. So I, I approve of them <laughs> breaking up. This is fine. They have my permission, right? Ah, oh, man. Anyway, so whatever. Mind going there. Um. Anyway, data, Power BI, all like Does my camera go off? Yeah. Oh my. You're God. gone. Yeah, it's okay. I've if I could, if it comes back on, and it's weird. I've actually prepared a second camera. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Yep, it's my second. One second, I have to move my second camera around because okay. So I explain what's happening here. I am. Um, I was on holiday, like last week, and I use my webcam camera as the camera that I take photographs with my with my with my family and stuff. And I changed all the settings, and it's switching itself off every. Well, it looks like half an hour at this point, to be honest. I thought I'd fixed it, but apparently I haven't. So I was like, in case this happens during the live stream, I'll use my actual webcam and plug that in, which is normally attached to my work computer. So I'm pleased I did that because, um, yeah, it happened as I expected. Sorry about that. See, we do have some tech tech problems, but we're so prepared as this time. As long as they're not mine, I'm all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my turn this this time. But I'm still technically here. You can still hear me. I didn't disappear like I did with Jeff. So it's perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. Naya, um, what we're we talking about? Yes, so I was going to try and get you to talk a bit more about the other side of your work, which is a side that I'm not as, as familiar with, which is the not the visualization, Megan, but rather the 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 engineer, uh, <laughs> the end the engineer, Meg. Do you do you also do like talks about that as well? Because obviously I know. I yeah. Yeah. So actually, next week I am doing a talk on Databricks Unity Catalog for the SQL developer. Okay. So how do you build a lake house that kind of looks like a database and how foreign is it really? Like if you know SQL, Unity Catalog is SQL based. Does it, you know, it, it doesn't have to feel so scary and unfamiliar. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay. I have to admit, like I'm I'm probably one of the people who is feeling has been quite overwhelmed by the changing in terminologies by the people who used to be Power BI people and now have become more fabric um oriented and are saying like things that I'm not normally used to hearing and I'm kind of feeling that I should be starting to become like a a fabric person and understanding data engineering and data science but I just at this point haven't done it yet so we'll see I think you have time and it'll come naturally as more people adopt fabric and somebody else starts using that experience in fabric and you go oh I need to know you know how that affects my power bi model and so you learn mm -hmm. just that you know that how the crossover works and then you get further into it and yeah. I, I all the technologies are slightly different like i bounce back and forth between um databricks and synapse and now fabric and so there's a lot of little differences or some big differences mm. between them but i think they're kind of converging on how things generally work okay okay um 
I think my favorite part is probably Azure Data Factory pipelines right now outside of Power BI stuff. Mm. They work a little different in Fabric, but and Synapse, but they um, the ability to do metadata-driven ETL without having to use something like in the olden days in SSIS land, mm. which is what we call BIML, to generate lots of packages. So you make mm. a template and then you feed inputs into it. And if you have 10 tables you need to populate, it created 10 packages to pop mm. one to populate each table. In Data Factory, metadata-driven ETL looks like one pipeline, maybe two, depending on how you want to design it, to that you feed metadata into to populate those 10 tables. So okay. I feel like the management effort is less just because there's less stuff to have to deal with. Yeah. So that that completely changed the way that I move and transform data. That's awesome. Nice. I mean, I, I understood like half. But that's <laughs> But the half that I, I mean, also, I really like when people mention Bimmel now because I only know that because of Ben. Ben, Bimmel Ben. Bimmel Ben, yeah. And I, this started like probably like almost a year ago when I was talking to Frank and he, Frank had had a something called Bimmel Ben and then he mentioned it was so, it keeps coming back to this this Bimmel. So it's strange the connections that you make and how, <laughs> and how you learn these bits and pieces. I, um, today for the, well, yesterday, yeah, yesterday and today for the first time in ages, I started looking at data marts again, um, which it's been a while because I kind of was kind of looking at fabric type stuff. And then I was like, oh, data marts, forget about those. Let's have a look. And I was like, I think I posted about it. Yeah, I did it on Twitter. So is it, are they okay? Are they working? They seem to be quite nice, but according to some people, they're not really functioning how they should. Um, and they're still in preview. So I don't know. This seems quite cool. Probably, yeah, probably I did much, exactly. Yeah. I don't use them. <laughs> I don't. So I'm trying to be very careful about what I say and don't say right now, but. Say what you want. They, I, seeing what we can see in Fabric now, hmm. I, for me, they don't have a place. Okay. Because if I needed somewhere to put data, I would put it in a lake house hmm. or, you know, like when you have, this goes back to my, I like to use all the tools and be familiar with it because if all mm. I could do is Power BI, I'd be really interested in data marts. But I, I use, mm. I've used SQL Server since I started my career. Yeah. So, you know, for me, it was no big deal. Spin something up in Azure, throw that stuff in there and then put Power BI on top of it. Everything's yeah. fast, nice yeah. and great. But when that's not in your skill set, you know, that's, mm. that feels a lot further away. So I haven't kept up with data marts much, but it kind of feels like they didn't quite make it over to fabric land. So yeah, I'll be honest. When I saw they were still in preview, that was my first concern. I was like, <laughs> if they're still in preview and everything's kind of so like fabric focused these days, then perhaps they'll never make it out of preview because I don't know. Um, but I guess also because a lot of stuff that I liked about them was it was like very much everything there like you, I mean you, you create your, your your data set and then you can build on that you can do a bit of um, the SQL query from it as well but you can also then directly build on the SQL statement that you've made um, which feel felt quite nice but I guess again like I say I haven't really been looking at fabric for a few months now if I went if I went back to that I would probably think yeah okay, maybe this is a little bit better and, and focus more on that so I need to spend more time looking at the, the new stuff rather than trying to be retro and using data marks. It's not intentional. It's just, <laughs> I, saw, I saw it right there. It's because I've been trying to, um, I've been at work, we're kind of so, slowly rolling our PPU. So I've been looking at what you get with PPU. And of course, data marks was one of those things. Um, so I thought, I mean, to be honest, one of the main reasons was just um, larger data set sizes, which was quite nice. Yeah. I mean, that was, to be honest, that alone is, is worth the price. But I was like, oh, look at all this other cool stuff. It's so shiny. Um, so yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, larger data set size. And to some extent, depending on how you work, deployment pipelines are pretty nice too. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. I'll have to, I, I'm, I was halfway through giving a presentation today and I got cut short. So I can, I can update my slides based on what we're talking about today. <laughs> what we're talking about today. 
<laughs> remove yeah. Dayton Martin and pipelines. Yeah. Anyway, but um, yeah, I um, I used it. And I haven't. I've, I've had a PPU license myself as well, and I haven't really used it as much as I want to. So now that I'm starting to use it at work, I'm kind of exploring and digging around it myself to see what I can leverage with that sort of stuff. Um, but it should be fun. It's nice to kind of start trying new things and looking at different bits and pieces, you know? Keep, yeah. You know. I mean, I can't imagine a company who really wants to put their analytics program on Power BI not eventually investing in PPU or fabric um, licenses. Yeah. I don't know that you can do a lot on a pro license, but I think at some point you have to make the jump. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of inevitable, really, especially, I mean, obviously each company has like a different data setup and stuff and they have, I mean, I, I in my previous company, I could never really think of a particularly strong use case for PPU, to be honest, because we had a really strong centralized, you know, um, a data warehouse with like live connections and stuff. And it was just very, very easy. The setup was fantastic. Um, but if it's less centralized, I kind of okay. So I was kind of it was it was nice when you when you move to a new company, you want to learn new stuff, you want to see what people do in different ways and all that kind of stuff. So it was nice to have that and say, okay, now I kind of understand from this different perspective. So it's been pretty cool. That's and what I love about that. consulting is getting into different organizations. Well, we work totally differently over here. Yeah, yeah, nice. that's true. Yeah, this is actually interesting because obviously I speak to so many consultants, you know, and it's a world that I've never ever had any um, experience with and and that must be one of the the i would say it seems like it would be like really interesting it might also be very frustrating sometimes as well i'm not sure um but to basically just go to different companies and see how they work and pick up different bits of skills would, would be quite could be quite a nice thing you know i read something really um thoughtful the other day from his name is merrill aldrich he okay. is a data engineer slash formerly DBA type, who I used to work with at a previous consulting company. And he wrote a thing on LinkedIn titled, So You Want to Be a Consultant. And he really did break it down in the, like, here's the good and bad of it. And here's mm -hmm. what you need to understand to have a healthy understanding and healthy relationship with your job. <laughs> okay. And so he's been a consultant for a really long time. Um, I hadn't seen anyone put it quite like that, but I think he articulated a lot of good points about how you have to have a symbiotic relationship with your sales team, how you can't kill yourself for every client because then there's just nothing left of you. Mm. And I definitely made that mistake for a lot of years in my career. I think there's some great things about consulting and I don't plan on getting out of it anytime soon, but clients only see you you know, for their allotted time. So if you work on multiple things at a time, you have multiple clients at a time, hmm. everybody forgets that you're not 100% dedicated to their hmm. project. That's not all I think about all day. It turns out I have, you know, whatever, three clients. And so I think about, hmm. you know, these other people's stuff. And sometimes it's as different as data lake houses uh, in Databricks being populated by data factory. And then I have to switch gears real quick and go to, let's build this really fancy Deneb chart and power BI and I love it. <laughs> But some days that switching cost man, like my brain is takes a little longer to, to migrate over to the next topic. So I'm still looking for ways to get better at that. Mm. But most days I wouldn't trade it for anything because I sure. love how much I get to learn. I love the people that I get to meet mm. and just little things that I learn off of every client, even mm. if they're mm. not great at, you know, Power BI or data warehousing or whatever, most clients have something that I can learn from them. That's really cool. It's nice. I mean, I can I can imagine it can be it can get overwhelming if you don't learn to deal with it um, pretty quickly. I mean, I know that. And actually, it's interesting because as you're talking that, like just directly above your head, I can see your MVPs behind you. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And um, I also think that that combination, and of course, I know there are lots of consultants who, who are MVPs the 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 things that you're doing like for yourself as in for your job i should say the and the constant on that side the amount of time and effort you've got to put in, put into it and then on top of that all the stuff like the the community contributions that you're doing which clearly is a lot because i think there are 
five, seven of them maybe. I'm not sure, but I see the, the blue one, which I think is five. Um, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to be so creepy by staring above your head and coming. No, you that's what up. they're there for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that and it, the, the combination of those two things to balance it, um, is that also like difficult as well? Or do you kind of like hit a stride at some point and kind of? I mean, I think it depends on the kind of company you are with, but mm. I think being a consultant who has a flexible schedule mm. makes it a lot easier to maintain your MVP status mm. because there are all these meetings during the day that you can attend to learn and give feedback. That's no mm. secret. We have you know product group interactions. Mm. That's part of the deal. And they're during Microsoft's working hours for the most part. So if I need to jump into a meeting, my boss, Denny, does not care. He's also an MVP. So there are like five mm -hmm. of us at my company, John, Monica, Denny, Joey, me. Yeah, five MVPs. So like it's uh, accepted. You know, we all jump a lot of times. We're in the same uh, meetings together. And mm -hmm. so it kind of works out. Whereas if I had a job that had nothing to do with that stuff, I feel like it would be harder yeah. if I worked for a company and needed to step away to go uh, join those meetings like conferences for a consultant are, they're not a direct revenue stream, but that's how I get my name out. And I have gotten work because someone knew who I was before. They saw a talk that I gave. Uh, I would say 75% of my blog posts are inspired by things that happened with, with clients. Hmm. And if I worked at a single company, I don't think I would get that variety of things to have such good inspiration to blog. So I feel like it's actually easier I was already a consultant uh, by the time I was an MVP, so I don't know what it's like, but it no. seems like I have it easier than some other people who have a job as a full-time employee focused on one organization. Yeah, that's interesting. That's like, I would I, I would be curious also now then to w work out or to know. Um, <laughs> I like this. Um. Is that a Freudian flip? <laughs> <laughs> Timesheets are, yeah, awful. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's like a special hell about consulting that is also highly dependent upon your organization is your billable utilization ratio. Like you need to stay whatever 92% billable uh, every month or you know, some people do it by week. Some people do it by month or just average it over quarter or year to date or something. And they're watching you and you need to justify how you spend all your hours versus where I work now. We don't have an expected billable utilization ratio. Uh, do work, please. Bill clients appropriately. Log time so that we can bill clients. And that's kind of it. But it's because we're small. We're mm. all senior except for like one of us. We hired a junior consultant a few years ago. So mm. like we can do that. That doesn't scale. You can't have a 200 person consulting company and not be like, you need to be this billable. Mm. Um, one of the things Merrill talked about in his his article was about junior consultants and I have a, I have some strong opinions about that. And I actually share the opinion that he has and that you really junior consultants are usually a bad deal for everybody. It's not conceptually a bad deal, but in practice, it is almost always a bad deal and it's unfortunate, but it is the nature of how we work that makes it so. So when a client hires consultants, they're expecting mm -hmm. expertise. Yeah. When someone is fresh out of college, they don't have expertise in really anything most of the time. It's really hard. They might have good ideas, and they might be smart, and they can learn, mm -hmm. but they have no expertise right now. And so you have to, if you want to be moral about it, you probably bill them out at a lower rate mm -hmm. to acknowledge that, you know what, maybe you just need someone to do some hands-on things that doesn't require full expertise. There's lots of levels. You know, architects don't stay on projects for forever. They get in, design, get out so that cheaper people can go build a lot of times. Okay. There's some good and bad to that, right? Like when you get in and get out because people don't want to pay for you to stay on as the project continues or wraps up, you never live with the consequences of your design. Mm -hmm. The junior consultants suffer from that even more because they didn't go implement those projects before they tried to do it in a consulting capacity. We always say, oh, we'll hire junior consultants. I've been through this at three companies now. We're going to hire junior consultants. We're going to put them through a whole training program and we're going to make them the best junior consultants ever. And do you know what happens? None of us have time to train those poor mm -hmm. people. Yeah. We're busy being billable, billable because we did not clear our schedules for that. And it's not like it, at my current company, it's fully supported. You know, if you need to go train somebody, if you need help, whatever, that's fine. 
But the truth is we have a lot of work to do for a lot of different clients and no one, no one makes it through their training program. Right. Um, that's typically what happens. So they, the, the, it's not just like, it's not great for clients. The junior consultants never get the things that they're promised. People don't make time to train them. It stresses out your senior people because they didn't really have like extra time in their job to be doing all this stuff. And so I think it's really hard to have a good program for junior consultants. So I'm not going to say it's completely impossible, but I think the tendency is it's pretty awful for everybody involved. So what would the solution be then? Would you just not hire anyone until they have the experience to not be a junior? So basically. So my opinion is that junior consultants shouldn't exist because clients don't want, like, mm -hmm. if you want to be a staff og firm, go ahead, but that's not a real consultant, you know, like, you want to put your butt in a seat and click buttons. Cool. You know, mm -hmm. pay them nothing. They, mm -hmm. the only reason people like junior consultants is because they're cheap, mm -hmm. but they're also going to make more mistakes because they don't have the experience to teach them not to do mm -hmm. that. Or they don't, you know, know the shortcut yet. They will, but I think you should go do your job for three to five years before you try to tell other people how to do that job. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's just checklists. And why do I want to pay you for a checklist? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good free information. Bring someone in once, have them do knowledge transfers, and then figure out how to build that within your own organization. If it's not something like if it's something that trivial, that easy to learn, hmm. teach your organization. Yeah. Like if yeah. you just need extra people, yeah, go for it. Hmm. But I just I maybe yeah. I mean, some people aren't gonna like that, but I kind of think you don't have people who haven't done this job before as consultants. I think also from, I mean, from my perspective, someone who's never been a consultant, but has seen consultants come in, one of the things that I've seen probably too often, definitely too often, actually, is that a consultant comes in and that consultant has such strong knowledge and creates and implements something that is so very good. But once that person is there, when that person leaves, it dies. It, it doesn't. It, it, it not necessarily dies, but that person became so integral that when they go, they're like, okay, but it works. It's, it's, it's good. But how do we then keep building on this thing? Or who, who knows when something needs to be changed? Do you understand the deep knowledge that was there when it was built? That's a tough part from what I've seen as well, you know? No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's a bad tendency in the tech industry, especially, but it's not unique to us that, you know, no one values documentation or knowledge transfer. And part of it is because the tech changes so often that as soon as you document it, you know, it's different now. But a lot of it is when you, and especially on the like developer, you know, .NET developer, ETL developer side, when you ask someone to document something, they're going to be like, well, I have 82 pipelines. And mm. it, instead of how do I start it? How do I stop it? What happens when these three common problems occur, like the, how do I keep it going on my own? There's knowledge transfer that has to happen. I don't care how good of a developer you are. If you can't teach people how to support the solution you just implemented for them, mm. you're not really a good consultant. You're a good developer, but you're not a good consultant. And I, mm. I distinguish those two things. So like for me, a consultant is passing on, they're giving you a good design that fits what you need, and hopefully it works really well, but they're also passing on knowledge so that your organization is better off than when I came in yeah. and they can maintain the thing that I built. Mm. So <laughs> Donald says, chat, GPT, <laughs> but that's kind of my point is like, if you can chat GPT, those docs, how useful are they? What are they documenting? Is it for audit purposes where you just need to spit out a bunch of junk? Sure. Go ahead. Mm. Is it for how do I do this thing? What's the most likely problem to occur? Where should I look for? You're probably not going to chat GPT that yet. And that's the most useful part of the documentation. Mm -hmm. The The thing I see that I think I used to judge a lot when I was younger in my career, and now I totally get it, is that one of the best things you can do is have this documentation, but like a project overview document that not only covers technical stuff, but talks about what was the original goal of the project? Mm. What constraints were we under? Because a lot of times when I come in and I see a bad design, especially from other consultants, it's not always that it was a bad design. It was a design that fit within the 
crazy constraints they were working under. And sometimes somebody should have pushed back to lift some of those constraints to actually make a better project possible. But a lot of times that's what it was. And everybody forgot because either, mm. you know, staff turnover or we just don't remember. We blocked it out because, you know, that project was really rough and no one wants to think about that anymore. Mm. Yeah. But there's a lot of like contextual <laughs> stuff that is way more helpful than the documentation of code or even data models because that kind of thing can be automated i can query my power bi data model today and tell you all the relationships in it and that mm. is helpful mm. but that's not all that knowledge transfer should be yeah. solid point i like it no very true um <clears throat> excuse me i'm gonna mute myself <clears throat> I didn't mute myself there. I tried my best, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I pressed the button, but I wasn't actually on my browser. So what are you going to do? Um, yeah, this is it. It's very true. Um, documentation, all that kind of stuff is is. But I still, and again, my experience limited. You definitely know a lot more about, about the, this, the process, everything. The the documentation, the sitting with someone explaining the process, etc. It's it's never going to be 100%. You, you can never transfer the knowledge 100%. There's still these little bits and pieces that are, and that's of course this is this is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But this is just sometimes the frustration of when this person who built the beautiful thing goes. The asking the person who built it for me is always the best way because yes, you can read the documentation, but, but here there's a little bit of knowledge that always goes with that person. And that's true of no matter, there's always some kind of staff turnover, you know? Um, and maybe the, the best solution is that when this, the person's coming in, they build it together with someone and it's not just, I, I'm not sure. Oh, you didn't like that suggestion. I saw it in your eyes. <laughs> it's so hard to do that though. So yeah. like here's the problem. That would be ideal if the goal is really to upskill your team. If that's really mm -hmm. the, like you need a new thing built, but we're really more worried about upskilling this team. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, working paired programming, working together with a consultant is great for that, but it's going to slow you down a lot. And mm -hmm. I can't, I can't predict any timelines if I'm working with someone I don't know. So you have to change. I I have a blog post about like the different types of consulting engagements okay. and what you can get out of them. And it kind of goes into this more if anybody's curious, but you know, sometimes there's project based and we get in, we do the project. I try to talk clients into getting some like after hours or uh, aftercare hours after the project is fully implemented so that they can come back and ask those questions and take care of little odds and ends they didn't realize until they tried to, you know, support it themselves there's retainer based stuff. So I implement some projects with people and then they just keep me on for whatever, 15 hours a month um, to just keep things going so that they have office okay. hours. I don't know how to do this in data factory or power BI. Uh, how should we think about designing that, you know, anything just to keep going, keep building on top of the thing that I built. Mm. They're great. But if you want a hundred hour project in, 15 hours a month at a time. Like you can't be mad when we hit the 15 hours and we don't do anything for the rest of the month because somebody's got a budget they're trying to maintain yeah, and I can't go over the 15 hours. Yeah. So if you want me, but you know, let's say you don't do data factory. And so you want me to work with you on data factory. And then you want to ask me, well, how long is it going to take to build this? How would I ever, I mean, I can spit out a number. Sure. It's 82 hours. It's, absolutely meaningless which yeah. estimation is kind of meaningless and a thing to make people feel better and get a general idea anyway but when you work with someone it's really hard to try to maintain the quality of the thing i'm trying that really nice thing your consultant built they mm. built because they didn't have to work with you yeah, yeah because they it. had they knew what they were doing and they knew the task they didn't have to stop to try to articulate it mm. they could just you know work with their team and build it and that's one way to get something done high quality pretty fast but if that's not your goal and your goal is really to get everybody on your team involved you know then trade off because it costs time and money somewhere and you have to decide you know where that is most valuable for you mm. and unfortunately what happens is the people who sign the contract are not the people doing the hands-on stuff and so mm. sometimes those get those are not in alignment. And that's kind of my blog post of, well, which type really does work for how you want to go about this? Because not if you haven't had to do that, you know, almost all of it sounds great. You're going to get help, you know, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. all you can think. I'm going to get the help I need. Well, yeah. it's not quite that simple because 
depending on the project type, your consultant has different incentives of, of what their mm. goals are. I will never promise, I will never do a fixed bid project where I say it's going to cost X dollars if I have to work with my clients because that's, you know, I can't control them. It's not that they're awful. I don't know. They could be better than me at something, but it's an unknown that I can't control. So then the cost because of the time is not something in my control. So I can't agree to it. That's interesting. So a lot of my projects are time and materials with a mm. estimate with a bunch of assumptions. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to cost, X dollars, which is really, you know, 500 hours because here's my general breakdown, but I I'm giving you this breakdown with the assumption that you have someone available to me that knows the data that on day one of the project, I have access to the source data that, I mean, my, the assumptions in my statements of work can get really long mm. because I want to set the right expectations with people. So I built a power BI model on top of some like sample data and they didn't have their data model ready yet. And so one of my assumptions was the data will be available when I start mm. building and they violated that assumption. And so it took us longer and everybody's great, but mm. that, you know, it's a give and take like that. And that's, I never want a consulting relationship to feel antagonistic, but we do all have to understand that everybody plays a part and that mm. I can't promise things that I don't control. Yeah, fair enough. I like that. There's my soapbox on consulting. That was I really I really enjoy when I say something and I see and actually the response on the person's face before they start talking. And I was like, I said something, <laughs> and then you're gonna have an opinion there, and you really did. Um, but no, it makes a lot of sense, and I really that's what I really enjoy because again, I've never I don't have any experience of that world. I've worked with consultants. I've I've seen consultants work, but I've never really had them express those opinions. So it's it's very interesting. So thank you for that. Well, that's how I got started in consulting was we had a consultant come in and after they left, I maintained some of what they did. And I was like, you know, there's some things that I want to change and some things I, I would do differently. And I feel like some of the consultants that were sent to some of the companies I worked at were not they were the junior consultants who yeah. got <laughs> okay. on their own though. Like yeah. they didn't even have their senior person to help them. Yeah. I was like, I feel like I could do better. I want to give people quality and I want to communicate with them. And, and you know what? I learned a lot. I probably got humbled a lot along the way, but Fair enough, though. Yeah. I mostly think I do a good job. So I'm sure it do. all worked out. <laughs> she did an amazing job. How long had you been working then before you became a consultant? You might've mentioned that already. Sorry. Um, five years all right that's a decent amount of time for sure yeah and that i'm one of those weird people that like i studied international business and computer science in college and then i went into data analytics bi mm. because data analytics didn't exist as a term back then and i just did it like that's my whole from mm. 22 mm. on i've basically been doing the same job as technology changes you know around me but it's the yeah. same job yeah yeah that's really I don't cool. have the cool like crossover story where I did something else first. This is it, I, but I still like it. So <laughs> that's clear. If you if you could if you could choose, would you go back and study something different? And I, I actually, to be honest, I'm gonna. This is not just in the context of of the BI data world. Like in general, this isn't gonna be one of another general questions. Anything that you like, I wish I did that. That could be a cool job. Like for me, it would be probably something like I don't know like like carpentry you know because it looks awesome <laughs> um so there's a practical answer and then there's the answer of like there are lots of things i would have liked to study i think yeah. by the time i finished my because i got an mba after my undergrad mm -hmm. but i could i waited about a year and a half to start it because i was still burnt out on school mm -hmm. um what I did was a good career to get me, you know, in a stable career that pays pretty well. Hmm. And I'm happy with my choices. And if I had to do it all That's over cool. again, it'd probably be pretty close to the same. Now, That's just cool. studying wise, like right up until I had to start like making college decisions, I wanted to study music. Cool. I, I was super into band. I played bass clarinet and clarinet in high school and Texas band is this really weird um, very serious affair. And the one I was in was like 
award winning at the time for high schoolers. I wow. mean, you know, put it That's in rad. context. It's not. And I took AP music theory in high school and aced the test. Like that was what I really, really liked to do, but I was never confident enough to be mm. like, yeah, I totally go off and get it yeah. and do that. And I probably wouldn't have been good and I would have been poor and not made any money. So it's I say like, I'm happy with my choices, sure, but there were yeah. things that I actually think I would have enjoyed studying more. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. Do you still play <laughs> instruments now or do you still have time? Okay. No. Yeah. I got it. I am a guy I knew a long time ago, back in school, he, he decided to be a dentist and he is a dentist because his parents were literally just like, you should be a dentist because we're always going to need dentists. And he was like, okay. And that was it. He just, he just went with it. He was like, that's <laughs> it. He said, it's just easy that way. My parents said I should do it. And I didn't have any massive ob objections to it. So I went for it and now he's a dentist. I was like, that's, there's a, there's a nice, and there's an ease to that, which I quite, that, that I enjoy, you know, he's got himself a good job. He never had to think about it too much. That's what it was. It's quite cool. Yeah. I'm probably going to get in trouble here. My uh, partner did study music and cool. ended up. So what happens when you study music is most people realize they probably have to teach music so that they can actually make a living. Okay. And he's, a year older than me and he finished he did his master's immediately after so we're you know a couple years apart but given the timing i got in my job before the recession in the us and he got mm. in his job just after like Oish. the you know just the he's he's the route i you know my 18 year old self wanted to take and has shown me why i'm very happy in the route that i took <laughs> that's brutal <laughs> i like it well, he, so he left teaching and uh, became an instructional designer, which I think is also a fascinating job. So for tech wow. companies, um, he, you, it's almost like the Microsoft docs learn mm -hmm. stuff. Okay. So he records video tutorials and writes documentation that's for a tech really, company. That's actually really cool. And so I think that's really cool as it a is. career. I don't think it, <laughs> like, it's not something you think about, oh, I'm definitely going to do that, you know, when you're a teenager or whatever, no. but I, I, I think it's really cool. Yeah, it is really good. I, I think it's, it does sound like a, um, a very enjoyable job. And if, yeah, I mean, to have a job where you're making like instructional videos and like, you, you can be like creative with that as well, you know, it's a nice, uh, mm -hmm. I think so. Oh, he's got all the cool, you know, video and sound equipment and there's four laptops in his office and not bad. Carrie's parents told me my dad told me not to do music. He did business and I didn't want to study business because he did it. And I was trying not to be, you know, the person that does the same thing yeah, their parents yeah. did. I get it. Yeah. But not to work out really well. Plus it like now that I'm kind of settled in my career, I have time for hobbies and things. Nice. Yeah. So I wish I would have captured a tweet. I have a really cool camper that I have been enjoying the last couple of years. It's a little ultralight mm -hmm. travel trailer. I and so I go that. all over Colorado and yeah. other places and, and we'll stay for a weekend or something. The dog comes, the boyfriend comes. Wow. <laughs> I remember you posted a picture of this on Twitter, I believe, maybe a couple of years mm -hmm. ago. And it stuck with me because it looked so amazing. I love camper fans. I love little stuff like that. It looked awesome. So I'm pretty jealous that you have that, to be honest. That's my, because I've been in the same career, I feel like I had an early midlife crisis because most people, you know, they're on their second or third career by the time they hit their midlife crisis. But because I jumped in mm. early, mine happened. <laughs> and that was my, like, I'm going to spend more time outside and traveling. And it turns out that thing, it's actually really light. And so I can pull it with a regular car. Cool. You don't have to have like a big truck or anything. Yeah. So I bought it when I was single and it was just for me and the dog, but it fits another person. So that's kind Perfect. of when it's good weather, that's what we spend our, our weekends at least once a month trying a new place. We camped in an orchard, wow. um, literally in between rows of apple trees. And then they had a you pick where you could walk around and get your own wow. fruit and stuff and weigh it and you pay by the pound. And yeah. we've done all kinds of uh, really just cool. Colorado is full of amazing, amazing places that are all within a few hours of where I live. Yeah. So I feel, you know, this is a perfect place to do all of that. And I feel really lucky to have landed here for a while. Absolutely. That sounds beautiful. And it's, it, you're right. It's important to, I mean, <clears throat> when you're working with screens and computers, and then you also have a hobby, that's the same thing to get away and just get away from screens and to be outside and walk and get some, I used to, we used to have a camper van, which I miss. We kind of sold it when we had <clears throat> well, when my daughter was probably like two, because it was, it got that size, but it wasn't fun anymore. It was with me and my wife 
and then with the dog that we had then plus the child who was growing and it got to the point where every time we arrived somewhere everything had to be like so pre precisely located for everything to fit in it took us like two and a half hours to actually just get everything and i was like this is just it's getting frustrating <laughs> too much work yeah and yeah so I, I i can i don't know that i'll keep mine for forever but maybe for like five years yeah. but i when Catherine was on with you, she said something to the effect of like her hobbies of making presentations and tinkering with tech were kind of related to her job. Mm -hmm. And I got that way for a really long time. Yeah. And I had to <laughs> branch out and remember there's yeah. there's more out there. So I snowshoe, I kayak, and I camp in my little camper now. And honestly, it's made a big difference in my physical and mental Good. health. So you can do, but mm -hmm. you can you know, be the consultant, be an MVP, but also spend your weekend on top of a mountain and it's okay. What, what was the first one <laughs> that you said you do? What, you so, so shoe or something? I didn't get it. No shoe. I don't know what this means. Snowshoe? Snowshoeing. Is it like you, you, you walk, you wear snowshoes and go climbing mountains? Is that what that means? Yeah. You don't have to climb mountains, but yeah. Cool. Wear snowshoes and <laughs> mine are like big hills. I'm not... <laughs> Uh, climbing mountains is hard but yeah i feel really ignorant i feel like and i'm not gonna have to go and like google snowshoes to see what they look like are they just like big boots or what no they're um sorry gonna... some of them are fiberglass some of them are metal it just depends on the material the old school ones look like tennis rackets but, um, my head. but they're bigger they're wider than your foot so that you stay on top of the snow because if you just walk around your boots you sink in right cool I've Googled them, looking at the same time, so he's describing them. That's awesome. I like that a lot. Okay, I get it now. I don't see everybody in Colorado skis or snowboards, and I tried it, and I really didn't like it, but I, I enjoy snowshoeing, and I can still see pretty things, and there's a bunch of snowshoe paths around here, so it's a little more relaxed. People don't run you over like they do with their skiing. <laughs> I appreciate that. I can take the dog with me when I snowshoe. Does the dog have to wear dog snowshoes as well? <laughs> nope. She just jumps through it. She loves it. Though. I can imagine. Yeah. She has little shoes though, to keep her feet because if snow gets all up in their paws, yeah. um, it can cause problems and they could get frostbite or it could just irritate okay. them. Okay. And so she does have little shoes, but, uh, for the most part, if we're just going somewhere real quick, she doesn't need anything. She's a dog. She can handle it. She'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, I, one of my dogs would, would love this sort of thing. They, the, I always see these photographs. I've got like a Bernie's mountain dog and, um, I see so often photographs of these dogs just kind of like sitting there, letting the snow just like fall over them because they actually do quite like the cold weather. Like she'll go and sit outside in the winter on the balcony and just like <laughs> lie there in the cold. Um, whereas my other dog just basically refused to go outside if it's like less than 10 degrees, you know? Um, so I feel like I have... That's funny. That's our high for today is 10 degrees Celsius. So. so wouldn't 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 be going out at all just be sick. your dog wouldn't survive the winter here because this is as warm as it gets for a while the the small one barely survives the winter here to be honest and if it's raining he'll run out do a little bit of grass close to our house do what it needs to, needs to do there and just run straight back in the house and i'm like running through like my carrier bag trying to find where it, where it did its business to trying to trying to pick it up but it's just like in sorry out and then back in again i don't know what you do. yep <laughs> Dogs are good fun. Oh, yeah. Actually, we want. We... Mine's been sleeping under my desk this entire really? time. She's been an angel. Yeah. That's awesome. I like that. The 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 one that's usually in the room with me. My wife went to bed early today because she's pretty exhausted. And um, my dog, that is usually in the office with me, has this really annoying habit of halfway through the live stream just doing pretty impressive fart, and it really stinks. <laughs> And sometimes I have to like stop myself from like, cause it's so bad. Um, so actually it didn't happen today, which was quite a, quite a nice change for me. <laughs> hey, we made it for the whole hour and nothing happened on my side. Did. Look at that. I'm so impressed, Megan. I appreciate it. <laughs> we should, uh, we should, maybe we, we should end it there for two reasons. One, uh, well, I was gonna say we, I start talking about dog farts. And um, <laughs> we've we've had we've had a minimal um, technical issues, so um, and it has been an hour and five minutes, so quite a long time. True. Um, so I will say thank you so much for for joining and, and spreading your wisdom of database consulting and all the things that you have the um, the wisdom of. It's been much appreciated. <laughs> thank you so much for having me again. Pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>
Pleasure. You're the, you're, you're the first person thus far that that's, that's been on twice and it's been fantastic. So much appreciated. I know I made Johnny jealous. You did. You did. He, he, he's going to come on and under a pseudonym wearing a disguise so he can get a second go twice. The the original rule that I set was I, w I wanted to get to like 100 streams before like do, doing like a, um, a repetition. But of course, I made an exception for you for our our our, our technical issues. So, my I've never gone back and watched that original one because I don't think my face can handle all the cringing. <laughs> <laughs> but when you went off somewhere else, was it did, did did Daniel come on? Did I kind of bring in? I think I did. Yeah, you brought in other people. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> it was pretty. It was pretty funny. I was like on Twitter, like quickly, like send, sending the links out and stuff. I like to think that at this point that when technical issues happen, I'm kind of really cool and I can just like go with it. But when it actually happens, I definitely can't. I'm so bad at like just click, oh yeah, this is this is perfectly fine. I just, I'll, I'll talk for like one minute on my own and then I'm like, okay, this is gonna get awkward now. So um, yeah, it's nice to have people on standby who I can send a quick link to. <laughs> Yeah. So everyone in the chat, thank you very much for all the questions and comments as usual. It was very good fun. And Megan, one more time, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Don't you wanna have